Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Silent Cal Coolidge is reported to have said that the business of America is business. Actually, correct or not, it's fair to say that by looking at American business over the past 60 years, we can see the arc of our contemporary history. Think of all the things that have been front and center in our politics and our culture that have sprung from business going all the way back to the 60s. Conglomerates, the free movement of money around the world, manufacturing changes, management and blue-collar workers' relationships, government control and union membership, private equity, derivatives, lobbyists, corporate political contributions, the impact of climate change, think tanks, and branding. Each and every one of these things has been a cutting-edge part of the empire that is Coke Industries, each touched and shaped by Charles and David Koch. Whether you like their particular brand of politics or not, the company and the empire they built has to be respected. Whether Balzac was correct when he said that behind every great fortune is a great crime is one worth examining in the context of Coke Industries. My guest, business journalist Christopher Leonard, has given us our best look yet inside the secret history of this secret company in his new book, Cokeland. Christopher Leonard is a business reporter whose work has appeared in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Fortune, and Bloomberg. He's the author of the previous book, The Meat Racket, and it is my pleasure to welcome Christopher Leonard here to talk about Cokeland, the secret history of Coke Industries and corporate power in America. Christopher Leonard, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, it's a delight to have you here. One can not help by being struck by the fact that, you know, we think of Donald Trump and what he inherited from his father, Fred, and, and how that inheritance was squandered in large measure. And we look at Charles Koch in particular, what he inherited from his father, Fred, and the empire that he built from it. Talk a little bit about that first. Yeah, these are very different stories. And, you know, say what you will about Charles Koch. There is no denying that over the last 50 years, Charles Koch has built one of the largest, most influential corporate empires in America through this very patient strategic approach to corporate management that really stands apart uh, from other companies. The book opens in 1981 when these bankers fly to Wichita, Kansas, and they try to convince Charles Koch to take his company public. And he would have gotten a personal payday uh, of roughly $20 million at the time in the 80s, which is about $60 million today. He turned them down flat. And that's because he had these specific ideas about how to run a corporation. He kept it private. He kept strict control. And I think most importantly, he guided Coke with this long-term strategic vision. The the people who run this company think on a horizon of two, five, or ten years out. They're not obsessed with next quarter's earnings, and that's allowed them to be very patient as as they build this firm. And the results have been astounding. I mean, this company's annual revenue today is larger than that of Facebook, Goldman Sachs, and U.S. Steel combined. And that didn't happen by accident. It was part of a very patient strategy over 50 years. And it's incredibly impressive to look at. And in a world in which short-term thinking, particularly for business and particularly by each quarter, is what drives so much of of business today, it really is impressive to see the impact of this kind of long-term thinking and unfortunately, and, and I wondered to what extent it was an issue for you in reporting out this story, 
the fact that, that the politics and the reaction of the public, a lot of the public to the Cokes, really disguises the amazing things that were accomplished from a business perspective. Yeah, and I think this is worth studying for anybody in politics or business. If you totally disagree with the Koch political platform, and trust me, there are a lot of people out there who do disagree with that platform, it is very worthwhile to study the strategy behind the corporate empire and the political influence machine, both of which, the politics and the economic side of this, they're... They come from the same playbook. They share the same strategic DNA. And it is really worthwhile to read this story, I think, and study it. I mean, I know I learned a lot from interviewing the people who built and who managed the system of Coke Industries. It changed the way I see things. And and I I just want to emphasize that this... It helps to talk about what the company does. It's rooted in the machinery of modern civilization. They make fertilizer, fuel, clothing material, building material, the sensors in our phones. They are masters of of complex systems and, and running the gears and levers of society. And that changes how they view things. They're very immersed in the details. And they're very focused on the underlying drivers of markets and politics. And I, and I think that that has given them an advantage again and again over opponents who are more focused on on the short term and on what the Koch people call the quote-unquote shiny object of, of politics or economics. So I think it's really worth worthwhile to study for anybody. To what extent was the politics and their involvement in it really a function of, of their business objectives, or was it simply a reflection of their personal views that they had the resources to take advantage of? So I think the answer to that is twofold. I mean, first of all, this is a very political family, and the company is family-owned. It is privately held. The patriarch who started all this, Fred Koch, was a hyper-political person. He was a co-founder of the John Birch Society, a very right-wing group that thought the federal government had been infiltrated by communists. So what you see in in Charles Koch, who's been CEO of Koch Industries for 50 years, you see in him this understanding that politics and economics are not separate spheres of life. They're one thing. And from the beginning, he's been very focused on reshaping American politics to help, in his mind, I think, stimulate the American economy. So there's definitely this personal almost idiosyncratic element to this of, of how these people who run it think. But then the history shows, you know, you, you mentioned that, that quote, that pretty provocative quote from Balzac, that behind every great fortune is a great crime. And the book does show that in the 80s and, and even before that in the 70s, Coke Industries was really pushing it in these gray areas of the law. They were systematically taking more oil than they paid for in their oil gathering business to the tune of of $10 million a year of oil they would collect without paying for it. And when the United States government started investigating that, Coke realized they needed to have a large political influence apparatus in Washington, D.C. So you kind of see this mix of, of sort of personal beliefs and business interests that play into the creation of one of the most influential uh, political influence operations in the country. Beyond the long-term thinking and the visioning that we were talking about before, 
Charles Koch talks a lot about and has codified, as, as you talk about in the book, this idea of market-based management. One, what is that? And how, if at all, did it relate to their political operation? So I've never seen anything like this. I've been a business reporter for 20 years, and you hear a lot about big corporations having their own quote-unquote corporate culture. There's something entirely different happening inside Coke Industries. That's one of the reasons I call the book Coke Land. Charles Koch has written this philosophy. He's been working on it since at least 1990, and it's called market-based management. And in essence, what he's trying to do is create a free market utopia within this corporation. So the laws of a free exchange market dictate life inside Coke Industries is the short way to put it. But when you get hired at Coke, you're going to spend your first week basically at the company learning the vocabulary, learning the concepts of market-based management, and you either totally embrace this view of the world or you're not going to survive at Coke Industries. It's all in or all out. So what that means is that these people inside Coke land use this vocabulary with each other, with these loaded terms like humility and point of view and mental model, these things that sound like normal words to you and me, are really freighted with this deep meaning for the people inside Coke. And I, I think the way it translates into the political sphere is that similarly the people in the political operation subscribe to this view of the world that is very unbending. This isn't like a proposal. Charles Koch sees it as a blueprint. The world must work this way or it's not going to work well. And, and the view in essence is that the only way to organize society is, that, is as a free market exchange system. The government intervention only causes more problems than it solves. So when you talk to the Koch political people, it's not an exaggeration to describe them as, as like religious apostles. I mean, they have this very strict, unbending view of how the world ought to work, and they're very patiently working in Washington to make the, co the country reflect that view. They really wanted to make the whole country Koch land, essentially. Yes, and I think that they're succeeding. I really do. That's one of the big things of this book. I mean, your intro to this was wonderful. All these issues about what's going on in corporate America, the rise of financial products like derivatives, the death of labor unions, the rise of corporate influence in Washington, D.C., the rise of this private equity economy where companies are bought and sold like, like pawns on a chessboard. Coke Industries reflects all this stuff. But it's also helping drive the country to look more and more like Coke Industries. And, and toward the end of the book, you really do see these similarities between what's going on inside this company and what's going on in the rest of the country. And, and it helps describe the state we're in where we can have 10 years of economic growth as we've just had, but the gains are not shared widely. And a lot of Americans, after 10 years of growth, you know, they're still back at square one where they were in, in September 2009. And so you've got to ask these questions. Why is our overall political economic system structured in a way that that's the case? One of the things that, that's particularly ironic in this is the degree, in, and you talked about this and you've referred to it before, is the rigor of the organization, the way in which they focus so carefully on, on metrics and expertise and, and how that lays out against how they've approached climate change. Talk about that. 
Well, it is astounding. I mean, I really, uh, to understand this the best, it helps to talk about Coke's commodities trading operation. Coke has built literally a global network of commodities trading desks that rivals anything on Wall Street run by Goldman Sachs or, or J.P. Morgan. So they're buying and selling global energy supplies. They're buying and selling these abstract futures and derivatives contracts. And the way they succeed in that business is essentially knowing more about the world than anybody else. So you know the accurate price of, an, of a barrel of oil when your competitors don't. And the level of rigor and data analysis Coke uses to understand that stuff is astounding. I mean, they bought a natural gas pipeline network in the southeastern United States in the late 90s just to learn from it. Coke didn't care about the pipes. It didn't care about the gas. It, it cared about the data it could collect from buying and selling gas. It hired the best meteorologists from the Weather Channel to come into Coke's trading floor and give Coke's traders a weather forecast that was a secret every morning that was just a little bit better than the rest of the world. This is the kind of analysis they use to out-trade their competitors. So you asked, how does this play into their efforts on, on climate change? You know, any effort to regulate greenhouse gas emissions poses a massive economic threat to Coke Industries. This company, as diversified as it is, its bread and butter really still comes from buying and selling gasoline and crude oil. It's just critical. And so Coke sees regulating greenhouse gases as, as an almost existential threat to the company. So to combat the prospect of regulating greenhouse gas, Coke affected politics in the same way it trades commodities. It, it got down into the nitty-gritty. It, it didn't as much act in the big public sphere of campaigning and elections, although it did that. It really exercised its influence down in what I call the kind of pipes of government power, the congressional uh, committees, uh, the, the, the actual lawmaking process, the administrative agencies. This is where Coke helped derail any effort to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. You know, we've talked about the genius of, of Charles Koch in building this empire. Talk a little bit about the genius of David Koch in his decisions within the family feuds they've all had to throw his lot in with his brother. Well, that's a really great way to put it, to be honest. You know, there were four Koch brothers, and the oldest, Freddie, never wanted to have anything to do with the business and has gone to live in New York, and I believe he collects art, and he's sort of been out of the picture. And so then you had Charles and his two younger twin brothers, David and Bill. Well, Bill Koch was something uh, of a hellraiser, to, be, uh, to, to put it, pardon the language, but he, he never accepted that his older brother, Charles, should be in control of the family empire. And Bill really launched a multi-decade bitter, bitter, bitter fight for control of the company. And I mean, this involved 20 years of litigation. It involved a lot of aggressive activity outside of the courtroom. He hired, Bill hired detectives to dig through Charles Koch's trash. I mean, you name it. It would have seemed logical for David to side with his twin brother, but David, I think in really the most consequential choice of his life, David Koch hitched his wagon to Charles, if you will. He totally subscribed to Charles Koch's view of how to run the family corporation and how to influence politics. 
And, and David and Charles Koch reached what I would call something of a truce. They split their ownership of, of the family company 50-50, no questions asked. And it was really a deal that accrued to David Koch's benefit. I mean, he, he kind of moved to New York. He wasn't as vo- involved in running the corporation. Charles Koch stayed back home in Wichita, ran this company, drove the strategic vision. And, and what resulted was that these two brothers, when you split their wealth, they're they're worth about $100 billion. When David Koch passed away last month, they were worth about $100 billion. And that's based entirely on the value of this corporation that Charles Koch helped uh, design and grow. Talk a little bit about how, if at all, Charles Koch changed over the years. As you mentioned before, he was running this company for 50 years. How, if at all, did, did he evolve during that period? You know, what a fascinating question. I mean, first of all, this guy, Charles Koch, took control of the family company in 1967. He was only 33 years old. Lyndon Johnson was president when Charles Koch became CEO of Koch Industries, and he's been CEO ever since. He has learned, I I think he's good at viewing some of his own weaknesses and compensating for them. He's never necessarily been the kind of back-clapping chummy CEO guy, and he had to kind of compensate for for that element. He, he's got a real engineer's personality. So I think he's worked on the sort of interpersonal relationship element of being a CEO. But to be honest, to me, what's striking about Charles Koch is what has not changed over 50 years. This, this is a, a, a guy who believes he knows how the world ought to work, that he has discovered the blueprint for how to organize a society, how to organize a corporation. And the prologue of the book is called The Fighter, because what I saw over 50 years is that Charles Koch is a fighter for what he believes in. He's got an absolute spine of steel. And even though he has this sort of avuncular, aw shucks, Midwestern character to him, it, it really disguises the personality of, of, of a fighter, and I think it's fair to say even an ideologue, who's been trying to, to export his view of how things ought to work to both his company and the country at large. How has he felt about the way in which he's been villainized and demonized by the political left and by Democrats in general? Okay, so this is a great question. And geez, I've seen this firsthand. You know, when David Koch passed away, I did write a critical essay kind of capturing, you know, I think one of David Koch's biggest legacies is derailing any effort to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. And that's not a great contribution in many ways. And that's critical. But boy, the vitriol, truly the hatred. Uh, against David Koch that you see on social media and even mainstream media outlets is astounding. You know, when Koch Industries renovated their headquarters in 2014, one of the things they did was erect a 10-foot-tall earthen wall around the north side of the headquarters to protect them from threats. And I can understand why they did it, having just had a small taste of, of, of the vitriol around these two brothers. But I will tell you what. I just got to repeat myself. This isn't going to deter Charles Koch. I don't think he feels that he has done much wrong in his life in the sense of the principles that he has stood up for. And, and interviewing the people around him who work for him and the people inside this organization, 
they truly feel that Charles Koch stood up, put his neck out to stand up for these principles of free market ideas, sort of anti-government stuff, and that he's been attacked for doing so. But I, I don't want to use the word martyr, but they, they, they see him as having done the right thing and just having taken a lot of flack for it. So it's not like it's going to dissuade the Koch network from pursuing their goals. To what extent have they seen a competitive advantage in their expertise, in their analytics, at a time when Washington in particular, government in general, has been so lacking in expertise and and really what little there is has really been destroyed by the political process? Yeah, I can't overstate the competitive advantage Koch has in business and politics because of being privately held and being able to think long-term. I was interviewing one of the senior political operatives at Koch, and he shared the most telling detail. You know, Charles Koch doesn't have pictures of himself shaking hands with presidents or, you know, with his arm around politicians on on the wall. He doesn't like to visit with politicians, and I think he feels sorry for them, is the way this guy described it to me. Charles Koch sees politicians as being stuck in a broken system and basically as being slaves to short-term incentives. A congressperson might have a lot of power, but he or she is going to be subject to re-election every two years. I mean, they're campaigning every two years. They can't get their head above water. They can't look at a horizon past really a matter of months if you're talking to these politicians. And so he kind of, it's fair to say, looks down on this dysfunctional, broken political system. And in response, Coke, you know, the Trump administration is a great example. They've been against a lot of what Trump is doing. But through their patience and through their adaptability and through their long-term plan, they've managed to get pretty much everything they want out of a Trump presidency. So, yeah, I I think they have a tremendous advantage against uh, a lot of the short-term incentive systems of of modern politics. David Koch has passed away. Charles is in his 80s. What happens to the company as, as Charles continues to age and eventually steps away? Great question. It's an open question. I mean, Charles Koch can't lead this institution forever. Uh, One of the later chapters in the book is called The Education of Chase Koch, and it's about Charles Koch's son, Chase, who's in his early 40s right now. And, you know, when Chase was born in 1977, some employees at Koch hung up a banner at the company headquarters that said, Welcome Crown Prince. That's the sort of burden this, this kid has carried his whole life. Chase Koch has been taught and inculcated with this belief system since he was four or five years old. I believe that Chase Koch will be CEO of Koch Industries one day, although we'll probably see an interim CEO before that happens. The real question here is, what Charles Koch says is that he has created an institution that is embedded with his beliefs, uh, his operating system, if you will, and that the institution will sort of continue on without the personality at the helm. But only time will tell. So we don't exactly know what the future holds, 
But I can guarantee you one thing. Ten years from now, Coke Industries will almost certainly not be smaller and less influential than it is today. This is a, a corporate juggernaut built for growth that is going to be an influential part of the American economic and political system for years and years to come. Who were Charles Koch's idols? Who did he look up to? Where did he go for advice or guidance or inspiration? So I would I would point to theoretical or, you know, the kind of ideological idols and then the personal idols. Philosophically, he's always pointing back to these Austrian economists, uh, Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek, who preached this kind of libertarian, anti-government view that markets, only markets and only free exchange can, can accurately organize society. Then on a personal level, you know, it cannot be overstated the influence of Charles Koch's father, Fred, for good and for ill. I, I think Fred was incredibly domineering, uh, left all of his sons with this complex to prove that they could match the old man. That's, that's my take on it. Those are my words. Charles Koch would probably never say that, but that's what I saw. But then, you know, one of Fred Koch's closest lieutenants was this guy named Sterling Varner, who was born um, literally on the edge of poverty in Texas and was kind of a roughnecked oil guy and helped build the infrastructure of early Coke industries. And when Charles Koch was taking over that firm, he relied on Sterling Varner a lot for the corporate philosophy and for the sort of growth theory that they developed. And, and I would point to Sterling as a huge influence. But, you know, once the 80s and 90s hit, Charles Koch is very much his own man uh, at that point. And finally, what do you see as the lasting business legacy, business influence of Coke, of Charles Koch and Coke Industries? What a, what a big question. I mean, you know, first of all, you have to just take into account the institution itself. The institution is a legacy, and this is one of the largest, most profitable, most influential companies in the United States, and it's going to continue to be so for a decade. But stepping back from that, of course, you can't disentangle the business from the politics. And you've seen this very patient, very strategic, multi-decade effort by Charles Koch to use his fortune to reshape American politics toward his vision of, of li I mean, profoundly limited government. And, and so I think that, you know, we have to take account of where we are as a country today with the rise of financialization, the rise of this kind of investor private equity economy, this belief that shareholder returns trump all. There's been a little dispute about that lately, about whether we need to think that way anymore, the decline of labor unions and all the rest of it. It, it, it reflects a kind of American capitalism that we're really grappling with today. I think a lot of people are feeling really alienated, and that has to be accounted for when we look at at the influence, not just of this company, but of the kind of management theory behind it and, and the theory about how we ought to structure America. Christopher Leonard, the book is Coke Land, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America. Christopher, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Yeah, thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Thank you.